Well, you might recall that in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, after Jesus performs the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, the people want to come and make Jesus the King of Israel by force. Not because they recognize our Lord for who He truly is, but because what He can do for them. Jesus can make bread out of thin air. That means the nation's disposable income just increased 400% overnight. Because in Jesus' day, 80% of a person's income went to buying food, if you can believe it. Although maybe Torontonians aren't far behind these days. But, but this sinful, self-absorbed lack of understanding, Jesus is the great food genie, isn't something that our Lord can ignore. What God the Father sent His Son into the world to do has nothing to do with free bread or, or more disposable income. God's glory is on the line, right? Eternal souls are at stake. People must respond to Jesus properly. They must see that the miracle of the loaves has a significance beyond itself. It's a, it's a symbol-laden miracle, a sign pointing to the gospel. It points to Jesus. And Jesus explains how that is by launching into what we know as the bread of life discourse. John chapter 6, verses 26 to 58. And, and there we learn that Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. Jesus is the ultimate bread from heaven. In John's gospel, that's the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. If we come to Jesus and if we eat the bread that he gives us, we will have eternal life. And because Jesus is the true manna from heaven, Jesus can speak of the bread he gives his people as being his own flesh, which he gives for the life of the world. That's what John means in John 6 by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's not cannibalism and it's not the Roman Catholic Mass. It means coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus for eternal life. That's John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. But this morning, we're considering Mark's account of that same miracle, plus the account which immediately follows of Jesus walking on the water, both of which have roots buried deep in Old Testament fulfillment. Now, interestingly, and did you know this? The miracle of the loaves and the fish is Jesus' only miracle to appear in all four Gospels. In Mark's account, the miracle's emphasis is again centered on Jesus. But in Mark, we find no mention of the bread of life or anything about Jesus being manna from heaven or feasting on his flesh and drinking his blood. Apart from the sheer magnitude of the miracle, which shows the glorious power of Jesus, Mark is more interested in presenting to us a Jesus who is the divine shepherd king of his people. In John 6, Jesus himself is God's manna from heaven. In Mark 6, Jesus is the divine shepherd king. These are two complementary truths. It could be my imagination, but am I very loud this morning? Maybe you could just turn the volume down a little bit. I'm just hearing a lot of feedback, I guess. Um, for six chapters now, Mark's been answering two questions. 
Who is Jesus and what does discipleship to Jesus look like? How do we serve him? And in answer to that first question, Mark's readers now know that Jesus is the long prophesied Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Jesus is Israel reduced to one person. He is the Lord. He is God incarnate. The one who both gives and receives the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the chosen one who comes to do battle with evil forces, who has angels at his side. He takes to himself the divine prerogative of forgiving human sin. Jesus is the divine bridegroom. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of nature, who calms the wind and the seas and who raises the dead to life. That's been Mark's portrait of Jesus so far. Friends, if there is a God who made everything, then there are claims made of Jesus in Mark's gospel which show him to be that God. Either that or John Mark is the most audacious blasphemer to ever put pen to paper. And today, the evangelist reveals two more facets of our Lord's identity. Who is Jesus? He is the divine shepherd king, and he is the divine I am who reveals his glory. So let's begin in verse 31 of Mark chapter 6. The 12 disciples... They've just returned from going throughout the towns of Israel. They've been preaching repentance. They've been casting out demons with an authority given to them by Jesus. And now they return to a familiar scene. Jesus is being mobbed, right? It's like, again, Beelomania. Wherever Jesus goes, he's being mobbed by people. Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. And get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So you see, Jesus is focusing on the needs of his disciples. The apostles, they've been serving others. Now they themselves need caring for. So together they withdraw from the western shore of the lake and head off by boat for a solitary place away from the crowds. Actually, a more formal translation of the Greek word used for their destination is a desert. So, maybe Jesus has a desert hot spring spa getaway planned for the 12. Wouldn't that be nice? Verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So, the desert hot springs getaway just got cancelled. The moment they step out of the boat... They meet a massive crowd who just expect to be served. How graciously would you respond in this situation? Because this sort of thing happens in real life all the time, doesn't it? God presents us with opportunities for Christian service. But the ugly sin of selfishness rears its head. No, no, no. This is is my time. I'm off duty. This is Saturday. This is Sunday afternoon. I've done enough. Get help somewhere else. How does the Lord Jesus respond? Verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Even though the needs of the crowd are interrupting Jesus' much-needed repose with the twelve, he responds with compassion. And how is that compassion expressed? He began teaching them many things. Ah, Let's read verse 34 again, slowly. It's, It's a key to understanding the whole passage. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And if we're familiar with our Old Testaments, a light should be switching on in our brains, giving this passage prophetic fulfillment punch. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 34? Ezekiel 34, and as as you're looking for it, let me just give you some historical context. This text was written after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC, after the destruction of Solomon's temple. So this is 600 years before Jesus. And the destruction of Jerusalem and God's temple located in Jerusalem was the most devastating event in Israel's history up to that point. But it wasn't something that took God or his prophets by surprise. They'd been talking about this for years. God himself ordained the fall of Jerusalem because Israel had almost completely apostatized. His covenant people were worshipping other gods. And the Babylonians, the superpower of the day, they had a policy of once having conquered a people in war to move the people out of the land that they once inhabited. And the reason they did that was because deities were considered to be local deities. Uh, The the power and influence of the gods was uh, circumscribed geographically. Everybody knew that. So, by carting people off into exile, it was believed that they could remove people, they could remove the Israelites away from the influence of their God. And the Israelites only had one God, which is really weird, but you could remove them from the influence of that one God, while also culturally discombobulating the the Hebrew captives and making them less prone to rebel. And and that wasn't a Babylonian Babylonian, uh, policy for Israel alone. They did it with everybody that they conquered. So in Ezekiel 34, we find the prophet, God's prophet, in exile in Babylon. This is 900 miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's just a smoking ruin right now. And and the chapter begins with a scathing denunciation, a divine judgment of the shepherds who have been leading Israel. Shepherd was a common metaphor for king, both in the Near Eastern culture and lots of places in the Old Testament. And this divine denunciation occupies the first ten verses. And God levels two charges against the nation's leaders. First, he says, the shepherds have been greedily fleecing the sheep. They had exploited the flock to make themselves comfortable and rich. But they had not nurtured and cared for the sheep and trusted to them. And these are God's sheep. Second... Far from protecting the sheep by keeping them in one flock, the conduct of the shepherds had led to the sheep being scattered. A term that signals the exile. So, here's the thing. What then will God do? What will God do to ensure that these false and dangerous shepherds will never again have charge over his sheep? God will put himself in their place. God himself 
will come and he will shepherd his people. The Lord says, I will rescue my flock. I will bring them out of the nations. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. He says, I, 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 about 25 times. But then we come to verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, and the language suddenly changes. All along, God has been declaring that he himself will shepherd the flock. But now he says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there we have it. A shepherd, a king, who is both Yahweh, God, and someone in King David's line. Who could that be? Jesus. (laughs) King Jesus will tend God's people. King Jesus will be their shepherd. Jesus is the divine shepherd king, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. And that's the text, Ezekiel 34, that's behind our sermon passage today. Mark 6, 35. Read with me. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, or this place is a desert. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So that sounds like a very reasonable suggestion. Verse 37. But he answered, you give them something to eat. What? They said to him, that, that would take almost the half year's wages, right? Are we, are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down or... In the Greek text, have the people recline or lie down, because that's how people ate food in these days. Verse 39, have all the people lie down in groups on the green grass. So they lay down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, and broke the loaves. Now, This passage never once directly quotes the Old Testament, but there's all sorts of Old Testament allusions. And as you probably picked up, Psalm 23, our call to worship this morning, reverberates throughout this passage. Jesus has compassion for people because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' actions reflect the first line of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the divine shepherd king. And the particular task of a shepherd is to bring the sheep to food and water. But Jesus isn't like those worthless shepherd kings who don't care for the people who are perishing. Jesus is the true shepherd. He's God's servant, David, a la Ezekiel 34. And he feeds his sheep so that they lack nothing. They don't get a cracker or a crumb or two. 
they get a full serving which completely, completely satisfies their hunger. Mark has twice told us that they're in the desert. But notice, the crowd lies down on a carpet of green grass. Verse 39. Jesus is the divine shepherd king and he finds green pasture for his flock beside the waters of the Sea of Galilee. None of that is coincidence. But most importantly, Jesus restores their souls and he guides his sheep in right paths by teaching them. He teaches them. Beloved, this is a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the divine shepherd king. And what a tender, loving portrait this is. How did we spend so many years spurning such a God? Jesus is with his sheep every moment. He feeds us. He takes care of us. He protects us. He keeps us from straying. And Jesus is a shepherd who shows compassion towards his sheep by teaching us. You know, while preparing this sermon, I realized I need to start using shepherd language a whole lot more in my prayers. I need to think more about my relationship with Jesus in sheep-shepherd terms. Because I'm a stupid, wandering sheep who desperately needs my divine shepherd's care. I need God's grace to take more satisfaction in Jesus' shepherding care and rely much less, much less on my own sinful, prideful autonomy. I want to want to be led by Jesus. How about you? Verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before all the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. And in all the Bible, only God's provision of manna in the wilderness surpasses the magnitude of feeding 5,000 men. Mount Pleasant, New City, the arrival of God's kingdom is seen in the lost sheep of Israel receiving her divine shepherd king. The divine shepherd king feeds his sheep spiritually by teaching them and physically by providing food. The kingdom of God has indeed come near in the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what Mark's teaching us. But not one person in the vast crowd recognizes this fact. It's a, it's a travesty of sinful blindness. We've seen this many times so far in Mark's gospel. But this is the same kind of blindness that gets the crowds chanting, crucify him, crucify him, in chapter 15. But these aren't intellectually stupid people. They're plagued with a moral stupidity, a blindness of heart that only God's spirit can remove. That they have nice, neat, prearranged categories for the coming Messiah and when Jesus explodes those categories, they kill him. So friend, a warning. 
be very careful not to make Jesus in your own image. Right? Never, never mind what you think Jesus was like or should be like. Use the Bible as a certain guide to show you who Jesus really is. Submit to the authority of God's revelation in the Bible. Let the Bible set the terms. And if your conception of Jesus, either his person or his authority over every aspect of your life, doesn't conform to the text that we're considering today, if, to your thinking, Jesus isn't the divine shepherd king, if he isn't the great I am who reveals his glory, then you don't believe in the real Jesus. It's as simple as that. The, the, the Jesus you perhaps love, respect, admire, are curious about, it's, it's a false Christ. But the real Jesus, he invites you this day, this day, to come to him, but only on his terms. Friend, you must come to your divine shepherd king as a lost sheep. You must abandon all your arrogant pride and see yourself from God's perspective, a guilty sinner, a lost sheep living under God's just divine condemnation, and yet a sheep for whom God sent his beloved son, the good shepherd, the divine shepherd king who lays down his life for his sheep. Will you be one of Jesus' sheep? Will Jesus be your shepherd? Will you be taught by Jesus? Let's look at our second point. Jesus is the divine I am who reveals his glory. You should probably know about me that when I was younger, I was a Beatles fanatic, and I just have trivia at my fingertips regarding all things John, Paul, George, and Ringo. But in 1969, Beatle Paul McCartney said a wistful and startling thing during an interview. At that point in 69, the Beatles hadn't toured for three years. Uh, they were sick of Beatlemania. They thought it was just a dehumanizing experience, and they wanted to devote more time to the recording studio. But Paul revealed the Beatles had discussed the idea of going back out onto the road as a bar band named Randy and the Rockets. And they would wear, some, they'd wear these hokey capes and masks so that no one would recognize them. And they would just have a rave up, like in the old days when they were playing bars back in Germany, before they were famous. But the interviewer told Beatle Paul that, would never, that wasn't going to work. Uh, masks couldn't hide the fact that they were the Beatles. They would be recognized instantly by their voices and even how they played their instruments. Okay, moving from the ridiculous to the sublime. Jesus is God. Jesus is the great I am. He is the creator of all. He is the eternal son. And human flesh can't hide that fact. And in our second passage, Jesus reveals, he reveals his divine glory in three startling displays. Namely, walking on water, 
passing by the boat and calling himself I am. And just like our first point, to fully appreciate just how staggering this revelation really is, we need to know our Old Testament scriptures because it's this episode plus Jesus' transfiguration on the mountaintop in Mark chapter 9 that constitutes the greatest revelation of Jesus' divine glory to witnesses in all of Mark's gospel. It's this account and the transfiguration. So look at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him into Bethsaida where he, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat, the disciples' boat, was in the middle of the lake. And he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, literally during the fourth watch of the night, this is between three and six in the morning, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Okay, stop there. That, this, is, this is the centerpiece of the story. Jesus is walking on the lake. He's about to pass by his disciples as they're straining at the oars. What our Lord does here is deliberate. This is a private revelation of his divine glory to his apostles. All the apostles. Not just Peter, James, and John in the Mount of Transfiguration. All of his apostles see this. These are men who in future years will die for his sake that others might believe in Jesus and live. This was something they would never forget. This is a private revelation of Jesus' divine glory. And we need to see this with Jewish eyes. So let's turn to the Old Testament, Job chapter 9, verse 8. And I want you to keep your finger in Job chapter 9 because we're going to come back to this a few times. Job 9, verse 8. God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So if God alone treads on the waves of the sea, what does that say about Jesus? This text identifies Jesus unmistakably with God. But that's not all. Jesus reveals his divine glory in three stages. Treading on the waves of the sea, that's the first stage. Now comes the second. Jesus is about to pass by them in the boat. Look at Job 9.4. Speaking of God, Job says, His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me... I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. 
Loved ones, what Job recounts in these verses is the awesome separation between God and humanity. God can do what humanity cannot. We we can never conceive of doing. God's wisdom, it's beyond compare. He moves mountains, he shakes the earth, obscures the sun, arrays the heavens in splendor, and he treads on the waves of the sea. This God cannot be conceived of in human categories. As Job 9.11 says, when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. But when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he does something quite different from the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Jesus intends to make the mysterious and enigmatic God of Job visible. As he had not and could not be made visible in generations past because it would kill any who saw him. Christianity 101, folks. Do you remember what we learned a few weeks back in Ezekiel 33 and 34? Moses asks to see God's glory. And God promises to display to him all of his goodness. But no one, not even Moses, can gaze on God's face and live. So God arranges for Moses to glimpse the trailing edge of the afterglow of the glory of God. And as the Lord God passes by, and it's the same Greek words as used here in Mark 6. As the Lord God passes by the cleft in the rock where Moses is safely hidden, he intones his name. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, or I am who I am. I am who I am. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And now the God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable face to face, is passing by believers in Jesus of Nazareth. Brothers and sisters, we cannot behold God's face and live. So God became a human being. What infinite, loving condescension. We're such a blessed people. People that sing those Christmas songs this morning, and it's not just a happy cultural holiday tradition, but it's actually in history, God became a man to go to a cross to die for us. That cosmic anarchists like us should be the beneficiaries of this kind of love because that's what it is. When the God who is unknowable face-to-face becomes a human being, he becomes our shepherd king and dies for his sheep that we might be his sheep, that is love beyond compare. Rest in that love, Christian. Rejoice in that love. How can this knowledge of God's love not put everything in our life into a different perspective? Men and women, boys and girls, stop living for themselves when they're confronted with a love like that. And if you're a believer, then no matter what you're facing today, no matter what 2023 has looked like, 
No matter what you're enduring, no matter the trial, no matter the tribulation, no matter how desperate you feel your situation is, know that God loves you. And He has shown that love preeminently in disclosing Himself to you in the person of His Son. And to those here this morning who are not trusting in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, understand that Jesus isn't revealing his divine glory in Mark 6 so that he can have his ego stroked. Jesus isn't thinking, look at me, I'm so great, I can walk on water. No, this is a loving disclosure that you might read this historical account and that you would believe. That you would believe. Remember, In just nine chapters, this same person, the great I Am, who treads on the waves of the sea, the the divine shepherd king, will be hanging on a cross with the spittle of mockers running through his beard and a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. Verse 49. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Or in the Greek, I am. Don't be afraid. Yet again, Jesus' divine identification is being enforced. He says, Take courage, it is I. Which is identical. It's identical to God's self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. I want you to turn here as well, please. Exodus chapter 3. We're going back to the Old Testament again and again. This text is rooted in the Old Testament scripture. Exodus three eleven. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring, the, and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this is what will be the sign to you. That it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I don't have time to get into the intricacies of the Hebrew, but the abbreviated form, I am, is related to the word to the word Yahweh. The name commonly rendered Lord in all capital letters in our Bibles. Whenever you see all capital Lord, that's Yahweh. I am who I am. And it's the same Hebrew letters that stand behind the English word Jehovah. In Greek, which is the language the evangelist Mark is writing in, ego eimi, I am, can also be translated, it is I. Again, this is all very deliberate. This isn't coincidence. The cumulative evidence is overwhelming. Jesus treads on the waves of the sea like God. He passes by his disciples in a revelatory display of God's glory and takes upon his lips the name of God himself. 
Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. See, Jesus had already revealed to his disciples who he is. He is the divine shepherd king of Israel. They had not understood about the loaves. But more than that, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who raises people from the dead, the divine bridegroom, the one who forgives people's sins, and who controls the wind and the waves. And, and that this same person now treads upon the waves of the sea, that shouldn't surprise the apostles one bit. Almost everything Jesus has said or done so far in Mark's gospel attests to his deity, his divinity, his godhood. We, we often think of the gospel of John as being this great quarry for proof texts of Jesus' divinity, don't we? But Mark's gospel is just chock full of them. But notice the text says the disciples are not only completely amazed, but they're bereft of understanding. Their hearts were hardened. Their entire orientation is still too restricted, too focused on the immediacy of their fears, too limited by their inability to penetrate the full mystery of who Jesus is and why he came. And the people fare no better. Verse 58. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Are they preparing for the coming kingdom? Are they preparing for the Messiah? Do they recognize who Jesus really is? No. Again, he is a, he is a genie. He heals. I'll close with this. The compassion of Jesus has fed, satisfied, and healed the crowds, but the physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves. They're, they're actually they're a fork in the road. One branch leads to Jesus' final saving purposes. The other, to a false understanding of Jesus, simply as a wonder worker. Every culture has them. He's just a miracle worker, someone who can make bread out of thin air, walk on water, and heal people. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now you know. Jesus is the great I Am. The long prophesied divine shepherd king who gives his life for his sheep. How now will you respond to this divine self-disclosure? Amen. Let's pray. Make this book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. Make this book live to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Parents, you can go wrangle up your kids from HSK. And uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper in a minute, but as you're getting the kids, any, any questions you'd like to ask? Get some clarification on something?
then our brother Nick can come and he's going to lead us. Oh no, sorry. <laughs>